I'm Kevin Bachman. On this episode of Background Check Radio, an audio version of a webinar I did with three leading international experts in our space, Andy Hellman at Rely Screening, Ed Hall, the CEO of Qualification Check, and Kirsten Bogus, the Chief Knowledge Officer of NetForce Global. A really fun, interesting 60-minute conversation on where we were, where we are, and where we're going as it relates to international products in our space. Well, thanks, thanks everybody for joining us today. We have a star-studded panel to talk about something that uh, I'm I'm personally very interested in these days. I know my colleagues are. This is their day job, but it's really as we look at our our space in the in the market, um, global screening. It's kind of been sitting in the corner for a bunch of years, um, and a lot of reasons that employers and CRAs aren't actively pursuing this as both a revenue opportunity and a risk mitigation opportunity for their clients. Uh, I'm getting sense that that landscape is starting to shift a little bit. My colleagues are as well. So I thought I'd put us all together and we could we could talk about it. And um, again, thank you for everybody who's joining us. Um, if you wanna share this with a colleague, by the way, we'll circulate in the next couple of days, uh, a recording of the webinar, and I'll also download it and confirm and convert it to uh, a podcast I'll put on the Background Check Radio podcast. So who do we have today? Um, you know me. We have Kirsten Bogus from NetForce Global, Ed Hall of Qualification Check, and Andy Hellman. Um, and I, uh, I, I mentioned these guys before we started. I said, boy, I'm really happy that PBSA has a headshot um, studio at their shows because these are four people that are – actually, Andy's is great. And Andy's got a nice headshot, um, but the three of us, <laughs> three of us have some have some work to do. Um, but but a little bit about our panel before we we dive in today. Uh, Kirsten is the chief knowledge officer for NetForce Global. She has more than thirty years of experience in our space, helping companies take the pain out of international screening. She's a frequent PBSA presenter and has served in leadership positions within the association including at the board level and um, the nuts and bolts of, of committee work. She is privacy certified as a, um, she holds a, um, a certified information privacy professional designation through the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Um, and she also holds certifications for Canada, EU, and the U.S. private sector. Uh, she didn't make me say that. I, I offered to say that, and um, that that was a mouthful, but some well-earned designations there for sure, KB. Uh, Andy Hellman is a published author, and along with KB, a frequent presenter on all things related to global background screening, whether it's GDR compliance to artificial intelligence. He uh, also has lived and worked on, on multiple continents. Uh, he's run 24-7 business operations and served in a number of different uh, roles within our space. He too also holds uh, several of the designations that Kirsten does, uh, as well as a, as a fellow of, of information privacy um, designation. And last but not least, Ed Hall, he's the CEO of Qualification Check, which he founded in 2009, specializing in international verifications, most notably education. Um, Ed noticed uh, early on that and, and expanded his business beyond um, universal, a university database access in the UK. So by recognizing that broader need in the marketplace, uh, he can now provide solutions in uh, close to 200 countries on uh, one single unified platform. 
Uh, and as for us, I'm Kevin Bachman, a partner in iCubed, an advisory um, recruiting uh, entity that, that I founded with uh, my old employee Screen IQ colleagues, Jason Morse and Nick Fishman. Um, we, we kind of look in from the outside on our space. Um, there's a lot of networking that we do, recruiting and advisory services, getting a lot of calls and, and interest on the M&A side, but essentially the three of us are taking the work we've done over 20 years in our space and trying to help every shop be the best version of, them, of themselves. We are, we are safe harbor, um, you know, no pun intended. We, we operate in a judgment-free zone and just kind of want to help everybody achieve their, their business goals. Okay, what do we do with today? Um, we're going to talk about different types of CRAs. And I think, I think it matters to spend a minute or so on who participates in our space, because as we talk through global screening, there's a lot of different considerations. It really depends on what what chair you're sitting in. Uh, we're gonna do a little history lesson, right? Um, Andy, Ed, and, and KB, I'm gonna ask them to tell some stories about what life was like 10 or 15 years ago, trying to fulfill and provide solutions globally. Where are we now and what are some exciting things that, that they're seeing for the future? That's gonna be a really interesting conversation. Four scary letters when it comes to international. I think you know what they are, but we're gonna chat about that in a, in a little bit. Uh, how do we break through the wall? How do we just sell better? How do we how do we arm our teams with the information that they need? What are some of our competitors doing? What aren't they doing? And last but not least, what are some things that won't change? What are just some some necessary evils we have to think are are still kind of part of our space? Uh, I'm doing a lot of the talking right now, but I promise pretty quickly that's going to change, and our experts are going to are going to take over. But when we think of the four different types of CRAs, and I did this on our last webinar and thought it was really useful to kind of keep and carry over for this one. We really kind of have four different companies um, in, in our space. We've got small guys that are, that are trying to make a name for themselves. We have maybe organizations that are, that are more established, but um, you know, aren't what we would call professional businesses like our publicly traded companies. That's not a judgment. That's just a smaller company. Maybe it's a lifestyle company. Maybe it's not, but five, 10, 20 people, two, five, $10 million shops. They're thinking of different things as they make these decisions than maybe Sterling or Higher Right would. And then mid-market shops that have seen a real big bounce in the last 12 to, to 18 months as we're coming out of COVID, looking to expand their, their business through relationships, partnerships, um, integrations, kind of straddling that space between the smaller shop and the publicly trade a shop. Um, why global? And, and I think at this point, I'll, I'll turn it over to our panel and I'll kind of ask them for, for their thoughts on, on what they see. Uh, my kids, of course, this is always my, how do we do it? Why slide that, that I put in? But um, we got a pretty good audience here, guys, and I'll let each of you just kind of chime in. Um, what, what, is, what is the appeal? Why should CRAs and end users care about this a lot more than it seems that they have in the last couple of years. I'm going to chime in first because this is something that I'm just really, really passionate about. Um, if, if you're not providing a good global experience to your customers, you are not helping them with what they need help with. You know, it, the world is global. We have so many people here in the United States who are immigrants or who maybe have spent time being educated in other countries or spent a work shift in some other countries. And uh, in order to do a full and complete background check, you have to have that information. Um, 
Also, if you're not screening the global history of an individual, you're, you're discriminatory. You're not, you know, you, you're looking at seven years worth of history of a person who lived here in America for the whole seven years, and then something less for somebody who spent time out of the country. Um, and, and then when you're not getting that international part, you know, there's a reason why your customers are doing background checks. They're, they're doing it to mitigate some risk, and that risk is not being mitigated. Um, that's my three cents. Yeah, I think carrying on from what we see in the last few years with remote working, that's going to accelerate the global workforce. You can hire people from anywhere because they can work from anywhere. And that's going to make these checks even more essential. And you, you may never see the person face to face again, just increasing risk. So the arguments just stack up even more. Yeah, I would say... I was going to say something else, but just on Taylor and what you're saying there, Ed and, and Kevin, from the first part in supply chains, you know, you think about the supply chain for labor. <laughs> it used to be pretty much uh, whoever lived around you and in the U.S. were a little more mobile and maybe you look at the whole country, but um, that supply chain, you know, to Ed's point, I think is becoming more of a global supply chain on the labor side too. And so the background screening has got to keep up with it. Um, but I was going to say that it is also just a huge revenue opportunity uh, if you're not doing the global screening. Uh, you know, generally, maybe you're charging $30, $40 for a full package in the U.S., but outside the U.S., it may be $30 or $40 for a single search in some cases. Um, and so the, the revenue is a lot more per candidate for that. Flip side is, uh, in my experience, a lot of times the global screening is customer demand. You know, the, the end customer says, hey, I've got candidates. I want you to screen them. Can you do it? If the answer is no, you're opening yourself up to that business going somewhere else once another Screening company says, well, I can do it for you. Uh, they may take over the U.S. business as well. I, I like the perspectives you guys shared. And, and, you know, for everybody watching today, you know, this isn't really a do global verifications, do global criminal searches, because we're all interested in doing it to, to the benefit of our business. Um, no, it, it, you know, I, I really like where Kirsten was when, when, when she first started talking about the risk um, it's not about do it just to do it because it lines everybody's pocket. And, and to, to Andy's point, it's, um, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons that kind of go beyond our own real self-interest when we, when we think about it. Um, Andy, you, you, um, provided some, uh, this, and, and, and I thought this was really illustrative of, you know, the size of the world, the size of, of the market, um, it, it, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you chime in, in in a second, but this was really, really interesting data. Um, can can you spend a minute or so kind of talking about what 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 are some common attributes of, of these organizations? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it was interesting seeing this data because uh, we tend to think that the background screening industry is such a US-centric industry at times. And certainly, you know, even think about the, our association with USA started out really US focused and only very recently officially went global. Um, but the numbers really do show that you know, background screening is, is global indeed. Um, obviously a lot more companies in the US, but pretty much every country in the world, you're gonna find some screening companies. And I think that the, uh, the caliber of those companies has really grown, kind of improved, has gotten more professional over the years. Uh, the way they do it, the platforms they use, the products they offer, um, if you go and you talk to these companies and you ask them what they can provide, you're going to get a pretty good matrix of here's what we can provide, here's what the turnaround time is, ordering requirements, all that kind of stuff. So 
Um, we're really seeing the industry grow up around the world, not just in the U.S. Yeah, very cool comment. Very cool. Um, K- KB, what, what are your thoughts as, as we kind of look at the size of the, um, of the universe outside of our, our borders? Yeah, and this isn't even all the background screeners that are out there. That's all the ones that we've just found. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. just kind of, you know, whoever's been in the news or, or been part of an association or something, the world is even way bigger than that. <laughs> Um, you know, it, it, you know, as, as Andy had talked about, you know, he mentioned that the background screeners in other countries have become more sophisticated. Just as we in the United States have become more sophisticated, and same thing for our supply chain that feeds into us, um, background screeners in other countries oftentimes are the supply chain for the international searches that are done in variously around the world. So it's kind of like a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Everybody gets better at it. The whole system gets better. Yeah, very, very good point. Uh, Ed, anything that surprises you, you know, on, on the provider side, as, as you look at the, the breadth of... Um... Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, that's more than I thought. But then if you think about actually the, the um, other places in which checks are done, you know, the growth in the HR software platforms offering on background screening, uh, government entities doing it. I think verification is becoming um, increasingly uh, increasingly essential. And we could see that in the UK. We're probably next after after, in North America in terms of how often we do a background check. But we're we're well ahead of um, many countries in Europe where culturally it's still just a, you know, let's trust what somebody says when we employ them. So I think yeah. if there's mass, massive growth, it's becoming much higher up the agenda. Yeah, and, and Andy, I, I love the comment you made a minute ago, right? There's more. This is just we, where we decided to stop counting. Um, you know, that tail can get really, really long on us. And Cala, by the way, for everybody watching, is Caribbean and Latin America. No shame in not knowing. I had to Google it myself. Um, but that's that's what that means as, as we look through it. Okay, kind of history lesson, right? Um Really excited, and, and we talked about this during our prep session yesterday, which I thought was a great webinar in and of itself, just listening to the four of us chat with each other. Um, Andy, Kirsten, tell some stories. What was the world like 15 years ago when, when the phone would ring? It wasn't the phone ringing. It was the mailman coming with yeah. the mail. <laughs> with the fax machine, and, right? Um, and it was the... Of the modem, you know, when we finally did have modems. <laughs> and it was the uh, fax machine if we were lucky enough to be that advanced. Um, so there were some phone calls, but but mostly a lot of it was mail. And it could take, oh, I don't know, Andy, when, when we first started working together, didn't we encounter something like, you know, some searches had been out there for a couple of years and were still being worked on? Um, yeah. 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 We used to be measured in weeks, it seems like, you know, that, uh, all right, how many weeks is the search going to take? It's two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. Um, and, oh, we need that. Okay, let's go get that uh, piece of data or that document. Oh, that, oh, well, we didn't know about that. Um, and so it was just a lot more back and forth. I mean, I remember one time we pulled some stats way back in the choice point days. I think about three quarters of the searches we were processing, you know, we found that something was missing from it because we didn't have a good handle on what was required up front. So, um, yeah, it was it was painful. Um, big black hole. Yeah. And that and that point, I want to make sure we kind of revisit when we talk about what is 
and what can be, right? That black hole, both of information coming from a country or an institution, but also um, from, from our partners, from our backend providers. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Ed. I, I think one, one thing to add to, you know, the last decade, the progress, but particularly the last couple of years with COVID and, and if I'm looking at, say, an education mm -hmm. verification being done by a university, if they're working remotely, they had to change their processes away from manual uh, in, in regions where they'd be traditionally very paper-based so it seems like we progressed kind of five years in the last two years as a result of that i think it's going to accelerate in the next few years as well yeah that's that's well, um even, yeah there's even some countries that are accelerating you know the basic id check requirements now and it's you know being whereas they steadfastly required everything to be in person and manually yeah. looking at you know, government entities are actually joining the bandwagon and understanding um, that it doesn't all have to, that, that there actually is a huge lot of risk, you know, when you're looking at original documents and a human being by an untrained person. That was, yeah, that was the big, big news in the UK, wasn't it? The right to work check can now be, could, they changed the legislation, could be done remotely. And, I, you know, and kind of tying some of the stuff together, um, just on what I just said is, you know, decades ago, background, international background checking, it was basically done by untrained people. You know, I mean, there was no culture, there, we didn't, there were no training things, you know, that taught you anything about any other countries. It's just what you could learn on yourself and, and what you could get. And employers, you know, if they didn't use a background screening company, you know, their human resources people or their people, you know, not necessarily trained in understanding how to look at diplomas and see if they're real or know where to go to get a verification in that. Um, you know, it was done by untrained people who were all doing their best. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, and yeah, Andy, remember yesterday when we, we shared a laugh over kind of a common story. And for me, it was really 15 years ago, 2006, 2007. And just the excitement and euphoria that runs through the building when you found a record it was like, yes, it works. And, and, and KB, like you said, you know, the India hit is faxed over and you hear that, you, you know, the, the machine lights up and just exciting times, um, you know, and uh, um, a long way we've kind of become. So now fast forward to 2022, what are you guys seeing that's, that is better, faster, cheaper? Than in years past. Can you give a couple of examples for our audience? I think back to what we were just saying, I think that now uh, it's pretty standard and it should be expected that uh, ordering requirements, data documentation, turnaround times, um, some transparency into what the source of the data actually is, all that should be something that, that you have access to now rather than we do a criminal check, but where do you go to get the data? Uh, I'm not really sure never gotten a hit so it really doesn't matter does it uh you know kind of these not really comfortable questions that now well we go to this agency and uh, in some cases you're going to know how far back the data goes and what doesn't doesn't get reported things like that so uh it, it's starting to really catch up to kind of the expectations we have in the u.s market for uh the information around placing the order what to expect for results what's included what's not included i, I think with the progress as well that 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 the, the fast progress that there is, it's a sort of moving target. So you want to be up to date with 
what's changing within a region and um, how you can get the data faster. Not, not just what's the legislation, what's the documentation, all of those essential things, but it's actually, is there a faster way of doing it? So you want to be working with the, with the you know, right partners who, who are keeping an eye on that. Guys, I'm going to ask... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say customers years ago actually didn't expect very much of their vendors when it came to international. It's like, yeah, if you could do it and it takes a month or so, then I guess that's all we could do. And, um, and they didn't really push on where is it coming from and how is it getting done. And when I say customers, that's the end user to the CRA and the CRA yep. to whoever their provider was you know, of, of the international screen. Um, I can tell you that that is not the customer situation today. I mean, customers all along the food chain from the end user on up um, want to know ahead of time where it's getting from, you know, make sure it's being done legally. How exactly is it being done? Um, can't you get it faster? When is it going to get done? Um, and what is the answer before I can get the answer? Um, so there's yeah. a lot more... Yeah. There's a lot more pressure on the providers in the food chain to know what they're doing and to continuously improve to do it better. So chicken or the egg, KB, um, do you think kind of that ambivalence from back in the day from the end user? Like, listen, I know Bangladesh is going to take a while. Call me when it's done. Do you think that kind of ambivalence carried through the supply chain from the CRA to the provider? Well, decades ago, yeah, but not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, that is not the situation it is today. So, and, and here's something we didn't talk about in any of our prep. Does accreditation have anything to do with that change in expectations or, or provider standards that, that CRAs expect? It has it in the United States, and there's a desire um, by the screening companies internationally to have it because they want to distinguish themselves from other providers. You know, when you were the only person, the only entity in a country providing background checks or, or whole, you know, international background checks, then it didn't really matter so much. But you look at India, there's, I've found over 200 companies that say they do screening. In the UK, I've found almost 150 companies that say they do screening. You know, how do you differentiate yourself from somebody else? And accreditation is, is absolutely one way of doing that. Um, um, and that is, that is very important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's I mean, a great de development, and uh, and and also the the digital trust framework that the UK government's doing is kind of along those lines as well, where they'll they'll they're going to be adding in um, you know attributes. So that'll be another way of showing that you've got robust processes and and allowing you know CRAs and end users to avoid suppliers who are who are over promising. Yeah, I think too that we talk about the screening companies maturing and becoming more professional, but I think on the other side of that equation that there's a lot more institutional knowledge and essentially more savvy consumers from the customer side that before, I mean, if you had no experience with an India criminal record, you didn't know to question, you didn't know even what to ask about. And so you kind of took what you got because that, that was all that you knew. Um, but as the marketplace has gotten some more experience with some of these products and with ordering internationally, then I think the market's gotten confidence to push back when something doesn't seem right or why is it done that way? Why, can't, why is it done that way? Why can't we do it this way? Why can't we do it faster? Do you really need that document to get this check done? Um, and so I think that savvy consumers helped also drive 
the growth and things. And it's kind of coupled with, I think, um, you know, some institutional knowledge just across the board, um, you know, that then drives competition into the space. And so when you have that 200 screening companies in India, you know, isn't just one company doing it and you take it or leave it. It's not a monopoly. There's enough competition out there, enough alternatives that that savvy consumer can then shop around a little bit as well. Yeah, it's a, that, that's an interesting observation on, on how we're kind of evolving. Use the word there. I use a couple of them I really like, savvy, um, mature, um, on, you know, both users and, and providers, um, you know, d- discerning. I, I think just, uh, you know, the, a rising tide lifts all boats. We're, we're kind of all learning fr- from each other. Um, last question before we, we before um, I'd love the audience to hear your thoughts on the future. This kind of um, new state of affairs, right? Where we're at now. How long have we been there, right? We talked about what was, and now we're where we live. Have we kind of been in this world for like six months, 12 months, three years? When did, you know, how long did it take to kind of get to where we are right now? And I realize that's, that's a weird question. I saw a big change around, you know, mid 2000, like 2005, six, seven, around there. That's when international screening really started to take off in the United States. There started to be some better um, supply chains. Um, we talked about it more in PBSA. Um, we, we did a little bit more networking and that. It was right around there that it started to get different. Um, and I think then there's also been a second change as there's been new entrants. You know, when you talked about the four different kinds of screening companies, you know, the one that you didn't really spend much time talking about was the new entrants that are really um, pushing on on our, our older um, companies, you know, the older ways that we're doing it. So these new entrants are doing a lot more automation, um, maybe even using non-traditional sources, and um, that is creating a totally different environment um, that everybody has to kind of catch up to because it's now becoming more and more the customer expectation. Those were the those are the two points that I'm seeing. Yeah, I'll contradict myself. You know, just kind of following on from what you were saying, Kirsten, that. In some ways, it's also the ignorant consumer that drives the marketplace, meaning that um, for those that have been here for a while, sometimes you, you know, oh, this is how it's done. This is what you can get. And we don't always challenge the status quo because um, we kind of think we know a lot and we have that experience. But some of these new entrants into the market are, are the ones who are saying, well, why does it have to be this way? Why can't we find an alternate way to do this? Why do you really need that? And so um, there's also something to the people that don't have the experience in the market entering it and pushing on those of us maybe that have been around a little bit longer about why do you really need to do it that way? Is there not a better way or a faster way or an easier way or alternate source altogether? So I think that's also having an impact and those entrants are relatively new. So Andy Andy and KB, to your comments and Ed, Ed, I would love your perspective as well as a provider. Are those new entrants coming into the marketplace, um, are they right or are they just different ways to do the same thing? I know the answer is probably somewhere in the middle, right? 
I mean, I was going to say that Ed is actually an example of a, of a new entrant, you know. So, I mean, in the olden days, we would say, oh, UK um, education verifications, you got to call the school, you know, you got to fax the stuff to the school. It's all manual. There's absolutely no database there. There's nothing you can do. Um, no, Ed, change that. I, I, I think, I think um, what's interesting, so if we're looking at our solution, it's a specialist solution, but it's but it's the aim is to keep it speci specialised but global. And there's a few examples like that. So if you, if you um, I think that that's, uh, for example, there's, there's some employment verification solutions that are popping up in the UK and, that we know there's lots of ID ID verification solutions and um, with these sort of specialisms, but with a global outlook, I think it's actually gives more opportunity to the CRAs because you can plug into more, uh, you know, into, into multiple different best in class solutions. So um, I, I think it's an opportunity versus a, versus a, um, a kind of disruption and, and, it, and it should hopefully help with automation in general. Um, Andy, Andy contradicted or felt like he contradicted himself a minute ago. Uh, I, I might do the same thing right now. And I want to look at one of the, one of the words here, um, collaborative. If we think of the relationship, you know, you have the employer, the end user, the CRA, excuse me, I'll back up the candidate, the end user, the CRA, the provider, and then maybe even the researcher of the researcher, et cetera. That's a long line like that. That's a lot of people or companies that are touching this. I'm interested from your perspectives, guys. Are we becoming more collaborative throughout? Just here? Just here? Where do you kind of see collaboration increasing? And where do you see collaboration kind of not getting much better than it used to be? I mean, we, we discussed this, didn't we? I think. Andy, you'd spoken about this, but with with the more you know, the more platforms you have, you can have the, almost the more APIs you need to build. So you can you can create more fr friction by having um, more you know multiple different platforms and services. So I think there's still some way to to go with integrating everything seamlessly for the best candidate experience. Yeah, I, I think it does go back to supply chain in a lot of ways too, um, to your point, Kevin, that there's, the supply chain has had a lot of friction. Without it, we wouldn't be able to get a lot of the data, but at the same time, um, I do think that um, those that have some control in the market are looking to um, simplify supply chains. And it might be just because it's by way of an integration and that simplifies it because we're not, yeah, I guess taking a step back, so much of international screening and one of the big differences compared to the U.S. is the manual nature of it, right? I mean, in the U.S., yeah, 60, 70, 80 percent maybe of criminal records are automated. Yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, but a large percentage, nobody touches that um, to process the actual record. The adjudication review, some of that may be manual, but so much is, is automated. Uh, National Student Clearinghouse talk, so much data is automated. Um, we're integrated as CRAs into all those data sources. Outside the US, historically, that wasn't the case. There were very few integrations. Everything was manual. It was typing emails. It was back and forth from one system to another, manual data entry. Um, and so some of the focus of the supply chain is integrations, automation, automating those data flows. In some cases, it's trying to take links out you know, to make the chain shorter. 
Um, but I think that a lot of it is actually supply chain related. Yeah. Your comments earlier make me think more of it as a supply chain problem. Um, and how do you fix that? But I think that's what's going on outside the U.S. as well right now is efforts to make that supply chain be more efficient, um, however that happens. And the longer the supply chain, I guess, the, the higher the risk, isn't it? Yeah. Less transparency. I think the, the more yeah. links are in the chain, the harder it is to see what all those links are doing. Fine, and a, a, a final question before I, I move on to the, the next section, guys. Um, when we think of improvements, right? Faster, better, cheaper. Are the solutions more driven because we're doing the work better? Like to Gabe, KB's comment about unqualified people years ago, not strong processes, procedures, or, or is the work primarily, is, is, is it easier, faster, cheaper today because we're just running the process better? The computer things that need to be hooked up with each other, the information that flows from the user to the CRA, getting the candidate a form a week sooner. Where, where, where are the gains predominantly coming from in your guys' opinion? A lot of it is process efficiency. Um, you know, this critical mass, the, the challenge, uh, my experience with the non-US screening, uh, is frequently you look at the organizations, it may only be five, 10% of revenue, um, if that sometimes. And so if I've got a limited pool of investment dollars and I need to decide where to put it, international screening frequently does not make the top 10 list or top whatever list is being included. And so um, it often got neglected, but now that um, I think a lot of other processes have been optimized, sometimes that means that relatively speaking, the potential to do work on non-US processes looks a lot better. Um, people have increased their volumes of what they're doing, so it's worth focusing on it. Um, and the non-US providers, by way of growing up some, have also had to mature with their internal processes. So as a result, um, I think a lot of that, yeah, is internal process efficiency, gathering the data up front. Uh, you're not having 75% of searches missing information. Maybe it's 7% or 15%, but either way, it's a big improvement. Um, it is knowing how to move data about more efficiently by use of APIs or automation, things like that. Um, so all that, I think, has had a really big impact on the change to optimize them. Got it. KB and Ed, your, your thoughts? Um, there's a, there's another thing, and we haven't talked about this entity in, in this whole chain, and that's the subject, the data subject themselves. And, um, and we've had blips over the past few decades where, you know, it had focused on the candidate experience, but I'd say in the last two, three years, there has been a tremendous amount of focus on the candidate experience. And, uh, when we look at it from, you know, that person's viewpoint and asking them to jump through hoops to get us information, and they push back, they push back on their employer customers or gig customers, you know, whoever it is that's requesting the requesters, and they're pushing back on, on those of us who are providing the information, that, I think, is also forcing us to become more efficient. It, you know, it's forcing us to really sit back and think, do we have to have a copy of that? <laughs> you know, can we yeah. do the numbers? Can we make it a form so that they can type it in rather than us trying to figure out what they wrote in the dark of night with a pencil that we can't read? Um, you know, those things, it, it makes it more efficient, makes it quicker, um, allows for more automation. You can suck up information instead of having to type it in. 
Um, yeah. And I think that also does put some pressure on the sources, you know. So, um, you know, I mean, again, to go, go if, you, if you look at an employer, why would an employer want to spend any time at all to do an employment verification for somebody who's gone? You know, <laughs> you know there's just no motivation for them to do that. If we make it painful for them, they don't want to do it even less. Um, if we make it easier for them, and, and there's some new and innovative ways for them to respond to that, um, then, then that can be beneficial and we, we have a better chance of getting an answer. Same thing for schools. Um, yeah. you know, so I, I think that that has something to do with it too. Yeah. I think, the, yeah, the data sources are, are, are being more collaborative as well as just following on from what Kirsten said. Employability of students is such a key thing for, for universities and, and professional bodies and so on. Yeah, people are taking more and more qualifications. It's more and more of a lucrative market. So they're going to want to be able to provide a quick verification for their you know, fee-paying customers, which are the graduates. So I think that that's really fast-forwarded. Yeah, it can't look good for a school to have um, a bunch of fake degrees flooding the market. <laughs> you know, yeah. it really cannot look good for them. So they yeah. have they have a reputation to protect as well, and um, and that does help them become more collaborative. Yeah, yeah, good point. So um, I'm going to speed us up a, a little bit. Um, because there's a couple other really, really interesting things I want our audience to hear. So we're not going to spend too much time on the competitors, which seems pretty counterintuitive, but I, I mostly want to kind of tee this up, uh, thinking back to those four different kinds of organizations, right? Um, we have we have five publicly traded companies in our space right now, Higher Right, Sterling, First Advantage, Equifax, and Meridian Link, which owns Tazworks. They have quarterly reports, annual reports, investor calls. If you guys aren't looking and reading at that, I recommend that you can. There is great insight into their corporate strategy, their financial goals, and something that we call the total addressable market. And depending on the shop uh, and their research uh, arm, it's anywhere between eight and 15 million, or excuse me, billion. <laughs> Big difference, eight and 15 billion. Um, Nick, Jason, and I are doing market research as well on the total addressable market. We're coming at some different conclusions, but let's just all agree right now, this is a really big space. And as we think about international, it's a really big ocean out there. And there's just a lot of opportunity with provider, or I guess CRAs, who really haven't leaned into the idea of making this available both to increase their revenue and like we talked about at the beginning to help their companies or help their end user clients manage their risk better. So I kind of see the larger organizations really saying, okay, this is where we're going to get a lot of our revenue growth. I think it's Sterling that released in, in one of their last reports, you know, close to 20% of their revenue um, is, is international. At the same time, there's other companies that just continue to struggle with how do I process, how do I communicate, how do I fulfill, and they're really not leaning into this at all. They're they're kind of running this as 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 status quo. Um, you guys heard my thoughts on that. Do, do you get the sense that shops are making different decisions on how aggressively to pursue this, or, or, or am I off base? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, we see, yeah, we see a lot of interest in internationally. You go to the PBSA conferences, you go to the webinars, we have a pretty decent, robust audience that 
um, you know, once you get into the privacy sector, then then a lot of people don't want to sit there and listen to all that. But you know, just in general, how do you do international? Whenever we do operational, you know, how to improve your international operations? That those tend to be pretty well attended, and that tells me that there's a lot of interest in it. Is it translating into volume for you guys? Oh, yeah. Or 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 is it pockets, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, mid uh, well, I. We're, we're seeing a great growth in, in the middle market. There is a lot more focus on that. Um, but even the smaller companies, you know, smaller companies are really struggling to figure out, you know, how do I compete against the big guys? You know, what do I want to be when I grow up? What can I do? And they're recognizing that, you know, even if you don't have, to, even if you don't do tens of thousands of international searches a year, you have to have some means to be able to support that client request. Otherwise, that client, as Andy said, is going to go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that the big guys too, you know, to talk about sterling, 20% of revenue from non-US. Well, if you're six, 650 million or whatever they are right now, a year in annual revenue, you want to move that needle. You can't do it with 20, $30,000 clients, right? Yeah, you can't grind it out in yeah. Peoria, Illinois at a package that's 5% less. Yep, you need some big deals. And so the way you, I think you find those big deals, one, um, the multi multinational corporations tend to be larger as a general rule. Um, and two, the size of the deals, because the non-US screening is generally more expensive, um, is a lot more. I have back to my days of doing account management for a little bit, pretty much all of our largest clients you know, in our upper level um, management pool uh, were all multinational. None of the large deals were US only, with one or two exceptions. You know, there's a few companies in the US, the you know, Walmarts that, that drive really big size deals, but by and large, anything with a really decent revenue that's going to move the needle is multinational. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's, let's pivot, um, sharp turn into something that we, we, the four of us chuckled over this yesterday because, um, I think our listeners think those letters are scary. You guys don't tell our audience why. More enjoyable reading than the FCRA, <laughs> and it's not as circular. It, you know, there's there's a lot of quite. You know, it, it, GDPR comes out, and you know, they say everything you need to know is in GDPR. All the answers, it's all crystal clear. And then, you know, Andy and I have had so many debates. It's like, what do you think this really means? And um, you know, there's still there's still some nebulousness out there. But you know, there are some um, some data protection authorities that have done a phenomenal job of providing resources and education. Um, Ed is lucky. He lives in one of those countries with the UK's ICO. Um, you know, and, and yeah, you know, it is it's scary because it's because all of a sudden you have all these fines, but here in the United States, we not only have fines from a regulator who won't help us in, in advance, but we also have class action lawsuits over everything. So um, I don't know. The U.S. can be pretty scary to somebody outside the U.S. Yeah, I mean, whenever I talk about global screening with people, I always say if there's one country I could just pick to never have to do a background check, and it would be the U.S. Um, I think that those of us that have grown up in it, um, it doesn't seem that scary, right? But it's kind of like speaking English. I say the same thing about English. If there's one language I would never want to learn as a second language. It's English because it's just, you know, arcane with all the grammar rules and exceptions and everything like that. 
Um, but you grow up speaking it and it seems fine and easy and it's not that bad, right? And so you think about the federal rules, the state rules, the city rules and all the complexity and then the lawsuits and the attorneys. And oh, even if you have a technical violation, you're still gonna get sued and you're still gonna lose. Outside the US, generally speaking, A, there just aren't a lot of lawsuits. B, when they're happening, it's against the Googles and Facebooks of the world, the really, really big data processors. And you know, most importantly, I think for what we do, if you're making a good faith effort, you can show some documentation to your thought process. You know, it wasn't really clear, but we did this because we thought this was why we should or what we should do. And here's our logic for it. That actually counts for something. Um, and, and so it's, it, it, I think it's a lot easier to adhere um, if you adhere to the spirit of the law to stay out of trouble. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree with that. And when I, I remember when it came in, came into being, um, a few years ago in the UK, the lead up to that, everybody was, you know, the law, the law firms made a lot of money. <laughs> and and Kirsten, you 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 mentioned about the grey areas and you know being a new law, there are there were grey areas, but there, it 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 isn't a um, it isn't a as scary as it may sound, and we haven't seen any issues. And again, going back to. Uh, having the right platform and, and the right information up front. That's what you want to have from, you know, that, that, that's what the CRAs could be given, can't they, by the right suppliers and the comfort that they're going to be adhering to GDPR or any other local um, legislation. I, I got so much out of listening to the three of you yesterday talk about this. And I told somebody else uh, a story about, um, you know, PBSA in the educational sessions and what's of interest and what isn't. And, and I mentioned that I personally will sometimes force myself to go to a session I'm otherwise less interested in because I might have a client who is, and I, I just need to be abreast. But typically if I look at a, you know, a schedule, I'd be like, I don't want to go to the GDPR session. <laughs> right. But, but hearing you guys talk about it and um, um, I didn't at the, at the onset of this say where we all live. Right. So the three of us live in the U.S. Ed lives in London, so I really like hearing this conversation from the perspective of of, of where home base is, and and just the different laws um, and regulations that you have to follow. Well, and there's a lot of similarity between GDPR and the FCRA, and you know the China PIPL and the Brazil LGPD. I mean, they all actually come from from the same um, principles, from, from the fair information privacy principles. And, um, and even something like, you know, the notice, there's a big deal about GDPR and the type of notification that you have to give to the data subject. But you know what, it's written in GDPR. It says, article so-and-so, these are the seven things you need to tell the data subject. Now go look into the FCRA and find out exactly what you're supposed to tell somebody. California yeah. versus Texas versus yes. Oklahoma versus Here's what the release should be like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've and been looking for decades for that. It's not in the FCRA. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so is I do is, have one funny GPR story, though. Yeah. So um, there's a, an app here in the United States that helps insomniacs um, when they have a hard time falling asleep, and it's called Bedtime Stories for Adults. And they actually read bedtime stories in a very calming manner. There isn't a, one of their bedtime stories is they read the entire GDPR, including the recitals in front of it. 
That's where I think all of my podcast downloads are coming from, uh, from the insomniacs in, in our industry. So as, as we look at the clock, guys, and feel free to throw in questions. I know we have one already. Guys, if you're able to see it and you want to tackle it, grab it. Otherwise, we'll find that we'll find that viewer afterward. But, you know, if we want to use the last couple of minutes, kind of really to talk about two things, which is what, if anything, can we do to help our clients, whether it's a CRA client, an end user, et cetera, realize the value of, of this part of the market of these products. Um, and then we'll also do a little glass half empty. What won't change all that much, but, you know, as, as we kind of move toward our account teams, our, our sales teams, what are some things the three of you recommend to the CRAs here that can help them better communicate the value of these products to their, to their end users? I think and I'm going to steal Kirsten's advice because she's in all the time. Um, but really having somebody that focuses on this. You know, the, in my experience, one of the big challenges with it is, as we were talking about yesterday, is selling it involves being able to provide some level of confidence that you know what you're doing, that you know what you're talking about, and you're going to be able to get the search done um, correctly and, and not frustrate a candidate, give them a horrible experience uh, or waste uh, a CRA or a client's money. And I think having somebody that focuses on it, that then starts to internalize all that knowledge and becomes the go-to expert within the organization is a key way to do that. So um, again, I give the uh, footnote credit to Kirsten on that one, but I do think it's a very important thing to do. You're going to steal what I was going to say too. <laughs> <laughs> Heard it once or twice. So, <laughs> so I'll have to piggyback on that though. You know, yes, absolutely. You have to have somebody who owns it and loves it and knows it and, and that. And, but then secondarily is you've got to invest some time in it. You know, you have to, you've, you've got to understand it and know it. And, you know, at least you don't have to know the entire ocean. You don't have to know 240 countries and 4,000 searches. But at least the top five countries and the top three searches in those countries know a little bit, There's, and I'm sure they're all the same countries that we all see. There's tons of research and support material out there. Learn a little bit about it, makes you feel more comfortable, and uh, really support that designated SME. Yeah, and there's a lot of similarities between certain countries, aren't there? If you, if you, if you, if you learn, learn um, the idiosyncrasies of certain ones, let's say in southern europe they're they're similar to their neighboring countries so you, so it's, it's not as big a task as it seems and it shouldn't be as complicated a sell as as it might it might seem um real real good interesting observations you guys had especially the idea of just throw some firepower at learning something inside your building really lean in invest some time some energy some money into um, really being that thought leader for your organization. You know, if you have nine people on a sales or support team, again, trying to grind out the, um, the central Illinois market or trying to win deals domestically by being 3% faster and 3% cheaper, maybe siphon some of that off, run a little pilot program, see what can be. If you throw some, some of your dollars into, into your staff, your time, um, you know, are you going to be better doing nine things one way or doing eight things one way and one thing, you know, a, a different way? Let's try and learn something inside of our organization. So really, really thank you for sharing that, guys. 
Uh, another thing I, I tend to see from time to time is, um, and, and I guess this goes with how well we can speak it, um, teams are usually good going one sentence in two sentences in, but once they get a couple follow-up questions, whether it's price process performance, the wheels start to fall off. And when the wheels start to fall off, buyers know that our confidence is kind of gone, right? Cause we don't know the answer to that question. And then it kind of, you know, drifts away. And I, I, I kind of think one of those solutions really helps the other. But if you, you know, I mean, UK, UK and India and Canada are going to be three countries that just about everybody is going to touch a lot. You just, you know, learn about the criminal records in those places, the employment and the education environment. And I've gone into sales meetings, they've dragged me in, you know, in these sales meetings, and then, you know, everybody's afraid to talk about international and and somebody say, oh, you know, it's really difficult to do criminal records. And it's because I happen to know three countries backwards and forwards, and I'll go explain. Well, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And the client is like, oh, my God, you know so much. It's three countries. I memorized three countries. Yeah, I think it's also easy. if you ask me about a fourth one, then you just say, I don't know, I'll get it to you tomorrow. But by <laughs> now, that you've got them in the palm of your hand. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, so it, basically what you were saying that, I think it's easier with the international too to say, I'm gonna have to get back to you on that. Um, yeah, because there are so many countries that someone's not gonna expect you to know everything. Yeah, if you're selling in the US market, I think that they expect answers then and there. Um, and so, but then that follows on from that to say, well, you know, I know this much about it. I'll have to follow up and get you an answer on that. But the answer can't take a week or two weeks, right? They wanna feel comfortable that you have the knowledge within the organization, even if that salesperson doesn't have it. And that's where what we were talking about in the very beginning, having that knowledge, whether it's within your organization or at least within your supply chain and having a provider that will get you answers quickly. Because, I mean, as long as we've all been doing this, I can tell you, yeah, I frequently get things, I don't know the answer to that. I got to go find out. And I'm going to go to my vendor uh, in country and say, what's the answer to this? And so having good vendors, good supply chain really makes a big difference, being able to make your customers or prospects confident. Yeah, and uh, go ahead. Ed. Yeah, and, and working on the sales pitch together with with the partners, you know, to do exactly what we've said, explain GDPR and document requirements and all these things in different countries are not as scary or insurmountable as they look. And I think you can come up with a pretty good pitch. Yeah, and um, to, to the last point here, um, and I, I haven't been kind of shy about communicating this, this sentiment, but, you know, there are factors beyond our control that inadvertently can make something that we do look better or look worse. Um, nobody loves that the work number and Equifax have, um, have been raising prices, but, you know, now users and, and perhaps employers are faced with a choice. You know, five years ago, I'd have to spend 15 bucks to get that six month worth of employment history from six years ago. I don't love it, but it's a stone in my shoe, whatever. Now I might have to pay 60. Would I rather do that? Or would I really rather that that somebody did get that university degree from Cambridge? I think some people may say that that's a better use of their $60. So there's market conditions that, that you know, um, can make this more attractive as well. And the, margin, and the margins are good. Exactly. Certainly for us selling it. All right. Um, kind of a little bit of the glass half empty before we wrap up with, with some final thoughts. Um, in light of everything that we do think, better, faster, cheaper, 
there are still going to be a couple people, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to go to hundred percent conversions right away. So I, I think, I think it, it is um, still wise to kind of being, uh, to be a little realistic about some areas where we're still going to keep stubbing our toe. What, what, what do you guys think when you see this? Are we on, are we on the mark here? Yeah, regulation is is going to continue to get more challenging, and especially some of the paper pushing that comes with these cross-border transfer requirements. You know, so we started with GDPR. You know, then we got the LGPD in Brazil. Then we got the PIPL. Now we got the India thing coming, and they're all going to look the same. And everybody has to have their own standard clauses and. Um, that part will continue to be a problem and get more complex. The world will not work together to, to make it easy for us to move data from one place to the other. Yeah, I think the, you're talking about ordinary requirements and Kirsten was talking about interacting with the candidates and how important that is. Um, yeah, I can remember specific examples where we thought we knew the ordering requirements up front. And there's like one for an education check in India. And Adam, I'm going to throw this over to you. So be forewarned, um, where we knew what the school required, uh, or so we thought, but this was the first time we'd actually verified a doctorate at that school. And so the school that actually issues doctorates has slightly different requirements. And we had to go back for some additional documentation. And so you think about all the sources, you know, the 10,000, 13,000, whatever number of educational institutions around the world, you know, what's the challenge with keeping all that, <laughs> even getting it all yeah. and keeping it up to date? Exactly. And then as, as things improve, that's mm -hmm. still a change to the process, isn't it? So you will still then have to go back and, and tell, tell the end user the process has changed. So even with improvement comes difficulties. Yeah, expectations have raised, but there's still going to be some friction in the process for things that are unknown. Yeah, I, and, and a couple of the things here we, we had hit earlier, and as I listened to your guys' thoughts, you know, KB earlier was chatting around 2,400 or, or excuse me, 240 countries, you know, master the first five. You master that five, then that gives you safe space to, to punt on an answer. You know, you're an expert because you know five. It's okay if you don't know Belize right now. Um, candidates are going to have to fill out forms. You know, they might be electronic. They might be manual. I thought that was a great point, KB, that you also made. You know, the, the, the world isn't going to bend over backwards to make it easier for us. We're still going to have the South African Ministry of Education that's going to say, give it to me in blue ink and black ink. They're not going to broadcast that out to all of us before they do it. They're just going to do it. Um, but there's still great opportunity to make money, Right. Um, margins are good. And as, as we look to um, um, really manage our clients' risk in, in new and different ways, uh, especially as the world shrinks a little bit, our ability to work virtually, I, I, I think there's a bigger seat at the table than right now um, we and the providers are, are, are taking up. Um, final thoughts for, for you guys as we get close to the top of the hour. Well, I saw one of the questions was, how does somebody learn about global um, screening or how do you start with that? Um, PBSA has tons and tons of resources. We have the global, um, the global education thing that's about you know, between 15 and 20 minute segments uh, to learn things. It's all recorded. We've even got a leader's guide that we've written. Um, we've got webinars. There's tons of webinars out there. Another great way to learn stuff is, um, is actually from your suppliers. 
So a lot of us, uh, I'm not the only one, but a lot of us, we love to do trainings for our customers, custom trainings. We love to get on the phone and just, you know, speak for a half an hour about what we have and what we do. So, you know, find out. That's where I learn stuff. I learn stuff by networking at PBSA um, and even sometimes with my competitors, and I just sopped up every last piece of information from suppliers. Um, that's how I started. So those, were, those are the best ways to be able to learn it. Yeah, and I think for following on from that and what I mentioned earlier is is learn from your suppliers and and sell with your suppliers, build a strategy with them. They'll know which sectors want want certain check types in certain regions. They'll they'll know what's been successful in their sales pitches. So you can learn and build a really great um, sales pitch that can, can can win you a lot of business. Final thoughts from you, Andy. Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything dramatically different. It's it's that the supply chain is is very critical. Um, however, it's getting done, it's having a good supply chain and working with them. We've always referred to our you know our, our vendors in that supply chain as partners, and, and you need to take that mental approach because they're, they're going to answer those questions when the client asks you something. You can't be an expert everywhere. You're going to have to rely on your supply chain to back you up. Yeah, and and I think my my last takeaway is um, set set a goal really say to yourselves, I want 5% of my business to be international, 10% or, you know, some incremental yet achievable improvement from what you're at now. And then think and look and ask around and say, what will it take to do this? Um, I think the three of us, you know, the four of us would agree. Um, this is going to be a bigger emerging revenue source in our space. Um, we should celebrate, I think, the larger publicly traded companies because they're they're helping make the market, and and we can we can gain off of that. Um, if you listen to the podcast or my webinars before, I consider this much like continuous monitoring over the last few years. I feel continuous monitoring was um, um, there was an element of that that was provider driven, sellers trying to make a market. Um, I'm a little more bearish. On, on that adoption rate as, um, as we go through 2022, 2023, I do feel differently about international. I'm very bullish on international. And I think there's a lot of opportunities that, that um, we can use to help our companies, our end users uh, better manage their risk and we can make some more money as, as well. Uh, what's next for us as iCubed? Uh, if you're going to PBSA, stop at the bar at two o'clock. We'll be buying drinks, having some appetizers for a few hours before the show. And then in late April, we're gonna do a post PBSA. What do we hear? What do we learn? What are we kind of thinking? Um, wanna thank our guests today, Andy, Kirsten, and Ed Hall. You guys are at the top of the pyramid when it comes to international expertise in our space. So on behalf of, of everybody who joined today and who will listen to it, um, either on demand or on the Background Check Radio podcast, really appreciate you guys giving us uh, an hour of your life. Um, thanks everybody have a great day thanks very much thank Bye. you thanks very much bye